thank you all for co coming out. I this should be uh, I should I, I think I'm going to enjoy this quite a bit. Um, if we if we address something like what is the psychology of terrorism, which was the, the title of this talk. What you're asking in a sense, or I think what we're trying to get at is what makes individuals adopt these particular extreme beliefs and these, these extreme tactics. Now, I believe firmly, because I'm, I, I, I'm in the political science department, that using the scientific method is the best way to try to understand this, particularly when we have a problem like terrorism, because terrorism is a very emotional topic. I know this firsthand because my father and, and my, my parents have lived in India for a very long time, and they have lived with the threat of terrorism for years, years and years and years. This has always been a threat to them. And when they immigrated to this country, they came to New York. That's where they first came. So when 9-11 took place, this was very emotional for my entire family. We still have family there. Okay, so I understand that this is a very emotional topic. And when I first saw what happened on 9-11, my first instinct is to resort to emotion, right? My first instinct was I was angry, right? But if we truly want to understand terrorism, it's important not to give into that impulse. It's important to kind of step back a bit and try to analyze these topics and try to analyze these in a non-biased way and in a scientific way. And so that's what, what I'm going to try to talk about today is what do we know from science about terrorism? What do we know by using the scientific method and how does it help us understand terrorism? Now to do that, the first thing we have to do is actually define what does it mean to be a terrorist? What is terrorism in general? There are lots of different definitions of terrorism, lots of them, and I think there's probably over 50, okay? Lots of different definitions of this thing. And if that's the case, we really don't know what we're talking about when we say terrorism. And I think it's insufficient for any one country or any one group to say terrorists are the bad guys, right? Terrorists are the guys that are opposed to us. That doesn't seem very sufficient. So what we have to do is define it in a way where it is as unbiased as possible so we can leave out some of those emotional responses and we can gain the most knowledge about it. Now, if we look at how the State Department defines it, the State Department defines terrorism as an attack by a non-state actor against non-combatant targets for the purposes of influencing an audience larger than the immediate victims for political purposes. Okay, that's the definition. That sounds kind of complicated, but really it, it's, the idea is that if you are a non-state actor like Al-Qaeda and you engage in an attack that's against non-combatants, that's civilians, and you're doing it for a political reason, that can be considered terrorism. Now what's important though is that sounds reasonable to everybody, I assume. It sounded reasonable to me when I first read it. There are some problems with it though, and you have to be able to identify what is at the boundary, right? For example, if you take that definition, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden clearly fall under the definition of being a terrorist, right? That's true. But so does Nelson Mandela, right? Most people don't think Nelson Mandela is a terrorist. Most people wouldn't consider him a terrorist, right? But certainly, Nelson Mandela was the head of an organization, the African National Congress, which engaged in attacks against non-combatant targets within South Africa regardless of their reasoning, regardless of their motivation for it, and many people believe that the motivations behind those attacks were justified given the apartheid nature of South Africa, regardless of that, if we're going to understand terrorism in a scientific way, it has to include individuals that are both the bad guys, that it's easy to believe that they're terrorists, but also in some cases the good guys. It has to be able to do, it has to be able to do that. The other thing that that definition does is it tells you some things that you might not necessarily be very, very happy with, like on 9-11, the attacks on the World Trade Center, that's an act of terrorism. That was against a non-combatant target. But the attack against the Pentagon is not terrorism because that's a military target, right? The Pentagon is a military center. That was all uniformed personnel. And there, there were some civilians, but it was a military target, right? So that is not terrorism, but the attack against the World Trade Center is. The other thing it tells you in a way is that states cannot be terrorists, 
right? The definition precludes any sort of states from being terrorists. So even states that engage in genocide or horrible acts that, that most people would think that seems like terrorism, it can't be under that definition that we adopt. Now, I certainly invite anyone to criticize that definition. And judging by all these cases at the boundaries, it's really easy to do. I think it's easy to do, and I'm certainly not happy with it. But if we're going to understand a concept scientifically, we have to have a definition that is consistent. Okay, we have to have that. Otherwise, we don't know what we're talking about, and we can just say the bad guys are terrorists, right? And that's not what we want. We want to be able to understand this phenomenon scientifically, so we have to be explicit about what exactly it is. Now, if we adopt the definition that I just outlined, what do we know about terrorism? This is a good question. What exactly does the scientific community know about terrorism? Well, one thing that the scientific community has really been able to do is to look at a lot of the beliefs about what terrorists are. After 9-11, you probably heard a lot of these that terrorists are psychopaths, they're psychotic, right? You probably also heard that terrorism is spawned from uneducation, from people who are non-educated, right? The uneducated tend to be terrorists. What you also probably heard is that poverty breeds terrorism. That's the one you hear quite a lot. In reality, when you look at the empirical record, you look at tons and tons of evidence, tons and tons of profiles of these people, none of these are true. None of these are true at all. In fact, most terrorists, most, a lot of psychologists have talked to terrorists, have gone in search to talk to terrorists. Almost none of them, a very small population of them, in any group there's going to be some individuals that are not, that have some mental disorder, but the vast majority of terrorists are not insane at all. They are clearly not insane. That belief has really been discounted even by psychology, this idea that terrorists are insane. Okay? The other idea was that terrorists are uneducated, but if you look at the population of terrorists, they tend to be more educated than the average individual. They tend to have more education which is kind of disturbing if you think that education is truly the way to pull people away from violence. In reality, it doesn't seem that way at all. They actually are above the mean as far as their educational level. Most of them have had more high school, more college, and especially if you think about the 9-11 attacks, most of those individuals were clearly very educated. They had the ability to fly a plane. Lots of people don't have the ability to fly a plane. Lots of people haven't learned that. They knew something about physics, right? A lot of them knew something about physics. Most people don't. Right? So they clearly are above the educational level, and that's not just in that particular incident, that's across a large amount of data and a large amount of groups. Okay. The other one that we had is that they're poor. But again, if you look at the, the terrorists that participated in 9-11, bin Laden certainly wasn't poor. Right? Nasrallah in Lebanon, who had just engaged in these, these attacks against Israel, certainly not poor. Right? Mohammed Atta, who flew the plane, right, not poor at all. He had lots of education. They're not poor. They don't seem to be coming from poverty. So it's not poverty. It doesn't seem to be a lack of education. And it certainly doesn't seem to be that they're crazy. In reality, if you look at what they're like, if you look at what the composition of these individuals are, they tend to be very similar to ROTC recruits. Right? Actually, if you look at their background and you look at their history and you look at where they've come from and you look at their belief system even, they tend to follow a lot of these same beliefs. Why do people join ROTC? Lots of times they join because they need money for college. Lots of individuals join terrorist organizations because they need some sort of sustenance to try to live. Right? They need a meal. They need some boots. They need, some, something to, they need a job, essentially. Right? Another thing that's consistent amongst ROTC recruits is that they have some sort of dedication to their country. Right? That is consistent across terrorists. Right? That's pretty consistent across people who participate in terrorist organizations. They also feel some sort of dedication to their country. They also feel some sort of dedication to what they consider to be their nation, what they consider to be their population. Right? That tends to be pretty consistent. Okay? Now, having said that, 
we know that most people don't engage in terrorism. Most individuals do not engage in this activity, right? So something has to happen that precipitates this. Something has to happen that causes individuals to move towards violence. Political violence, and, and this should be emphasized, is pretty rare. Okay, people engaging in acts of political violence is pretty, regardless of what you see on the news and what it appears to be, if you look in the news, it seems like everybody's engaging in acts of political violence. But in reality, it is very, very rare. Okay, it is not a normal thing to do. So a real question is, what is motivating an individual that seems to be above average intelligence in a good social standing, what is motivating an individual like that to engage in an act of terrorism, which seems to be such an extreme tactic? Well, if we want to know the answer to this, what's very important to do is to stop looking just at the terrorists themselves. Okay, this is what I would argue. If you just look at the terrorists themselves and you don't look strategically, meaning you don't look at how events are affecting the particular individual, which is motivating them to engage in terrorism, you're only getting half the picture. Okay? In reality, these, guys, these individuals are pushed by forces that are outside. Right? So if you have a terrorist that, that's considering engaging in an act of terrorism but has no opportunity to do it or has no motivation to do it, then they won't, won't engage in this activity. Right? But if you have an individual that is there that has these tendencies and something comes along and gives them the opportunity to do this or something gives them a reason to do it, that's when they will act. Okay? So let me, let me go over a, a concept in political science which is known as the security dilemma. Okay? And this is used as an explanation for why individuals engage in terrorism. The vast majority of individuals in any society don't engage in political violence. They are pretty content with what they have. Okay? But what typically happens is that there will be an entrepreneur of some sort, a political entrepreneur of some sort, that will say to try to gain some sort of power, to try to gain some ability to hold a higher office or hold a leadership position, that you as a group, right, if you guys represent one population of people, and I were a leader trying to recruit you to do terrorism, one thing I would tell you is that all of you, all of us, are under attack. All of us have something to fear. All of us should be worried about, say, Arabs. All of us should be worried about you know, Muslims from the Middle East. We are all in danger. And I would preach this to you again and again and again. And what I would do strategically is I would point to examples of this. I would say, look at all the terrorism that you see. Those are all Arabs, right? Those are all Arabs engaging in this activity. In reality, it, I, I would say those are all, they're not just Arabs, they're all Muslims, right? In reality, Arabs are only a small fraction of the amount of Muslims in the world, a very small fraction. But that doesn't matter, because as long as I pitch this to you, and as long as you start seeing these images again and again and again, and you start to believe me, then maybe you will feel under threat. And even if you don't join a terrorist group yourself, you might be inclined to be more sympathetic to me and support me, maybe even just giving me money, right, to try to continue my cause. That is exactly the kind of tactics the terrorists use to try to motivate people. They try to create the sense of fear. They try to say, look at the world out there, right? For example, if you're bin Laden, what you might say is, look at the United States. Look what the United States does. The United States bombs anybody it wants, and nobody ever punishes the United States. The United States kills a whole bunch of civilians, but they're not considered terrorists at all. They just call that collateral damage, right? That's how callous the United States is. That's how nasty the enemy that we're dealing with is. Do you really think that they would care if they accidentally bombed your house? They would just consider it collateral damage, right? And again, I'm speaking from the perspective of trying to recruit people into terrorism, right? I would say these things again and again and again. I would point to examples very selectively and very strategically again and again and again that would increase people's fear and people's belief that they are under threat and that they have a reason to support me, okay? I would keep doing that again and again and again. And if I keep doing that again and again and again, eventually the United States might start to pay attention. The United States might say, well, we have to do something about this. 
this guy's out of control. He's saying things that are completely wrong. He's distorting everything. We have to maybe arrest him, right? But then the act of arresting me makes me a martyr, right? To all of you, it confirms everything that I've been telling you, right? That's how individuals are motivated to terrorism. It's a strategic process. It's not enough to just look at the terrorists. You have to look at what the government does too, right? You're playing chess here, right? And the actors that are involved in this, if I'm a terrorist leader, I'm thinking strategically. I'm thinking if I take a certain action, what is my opponent going to do? How are they going to react? And how, how is their reaction going to help or hurt my ability to recruit more people? Right? So if we take the 9-11 attacks, it's not enough to say that the, bin Laden probably anticipated a vast military response from the United States. He probably did. But he engaged in that attack anyway, probably because he expected a vast military response from the United States and realized that if he were able to survive it and escape it, he has demonstrated to the rest of his population, to his target population, that he is much stronger than you guys originally thought. Right? If, I come, if, I'm just, you know, if I say I'm going to oppose the United States today, right, no one would believe me. If I survive a massive U.S. strike to try to take me out, I have much more credibility in pitching that message to you. And you might believe me more. And you might come to my movement more to try to support me. Right? Especially then if I have many more images to pitch to you about the atrocities the United States commits. Whether or not that's true or not, again, that doesn't matter. I just have to point to selective examples of things to try to make you believe that. That is exactly how individuals are motivated to terrorism. They're motivated by fear, and they're motivated by the strategic use of information by political entrepreneurs that seemingly have more than they do. Okay? That's how individuals are motivated into this. Okay? And it's not that they're crazy. It's not that they're psychotic. It's not that they're poor. They believe in this sense of fear, and they believe that there's nothing else that can be possibly done, and so they turn to a politician or a leader or a group to try to support them and try to provide them with that security. Okay? So it's a sad thing in a way, because there's no, nothing evil about them. They just want security, and they believe that there's a leader that's capable of giving them that. Okay, so with that, I'll stop and just take questions about terrorism. Yeah, their motives. Most political entrepreneurs are motivated by, you know, just a, a will. They, in some cases, they genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. Right? It's not that there's this evil entrepreneur that's just trying to manipulate people. In most cases, they believe that they're actually they can help people out. They can provide security, but people don't know the security threat that's in front of them. So they try to pitch this again and again and again. If we make an analogy to American politics, this is equivalent of anti-communist politicians. Right? There are politicians out there that said, the US public needs to understand the threat of communism. So I'm going to throw this at them again and again and again and demonstrate to them how big a threat this is. Right? So it's not that they're evil. It's not that they're just nefarious and trying to manipulate people. Sometimes they genuinely believe what they're saying. And sometimes they have these extreme preferences like that. They have the extreme beliefs that you know, something is a threat. And they pitch that to try to get people to believe it. Yeah. No, no, no. It, it, they're, they're not altruistic, right? They, usually, it, as a political scientist, I tend to assume that everyone is self-centered, that everyone just believes basically they want it, they want everything that's good for themselves, right? So, suicide bombers typically, when they are motivated to action, right? They're not poor. They're not crazy. They're not anything like that. Usually, they're motivated because they don't see any sort of viable alternative on earth for them, and if they're promised something in heaven. And if they're promised payment for their family or some sort of security for their family, which is incidentally what a lot of groups do, right? They promise to take care of the family. That can be enough to motivate people into terrorism. I would consider that crazy. Maybe, right? But they're not. If you're if the definition of crazy, right, is that at least according to, to a rational choice definition, is that you can't order your preferences and you can't keep your preferences consistent, right? But if you can do that. 
right? And you can consider yourself, and you can do it in that way. You can keep your preferences consistent. Then you're not crazy, right? And it, it, it's not. It, for for example, if you think about what what some why some soldiers join the, the military, right? A lot of times they say, you know what? I'm willing to defend the United States, and I'm willing to die for the United States. That could be considered crazy too, right? But it's not, right? It really doesn't seem to be. Sure. Okay. There, there isn't any one religion that I would say promotes terrorism. Religion is used to try to, as, as a motivating tactic, right? So if I were an entrepreneur, if I were a terrorist leader, I would pitch to people that your religion is under attack. Your most sacred beliefs are under attack. And therefore, that's your reason to try to mobilize against our enemy, right? Because our enemy is destroying the big symbols of us. Right. It's not that there's something about Islam that moves people to terrorism. It's the idea that what, what, these, what these successful terrorist leaders do is try to make Islam the issue. Right? And if you put that as the issue and you say that that's what's under attack, that's very effective in catching a lot of people. Because what's important to recognize is that Islam is a very diverse religion. Right? It's not this one monolithic block. There's splits within Islam and there's plenty of splits within Islam. So it's not a catch-all to say just Islam is under attack. Right. You have to try to get as many people as possible, so you have to make the symbol as relevant as possible to this large amount of people to try to get that. Yes? Well, that's a, that's a million-dollar question, right? I mean, if you, if you there are counter, and actually, this is, there are counter-terrorist strategies that you can define, right? The problem, though, is that you don't, it, the only way you can perfectly stop terrorism is if you had an unlimited budget. Inevitably, as a, a as, if you're dealing with terrorism, inevitably, if you don't have this unlimited budget, something will get through. Okay? And that's, that's something that most societies just have to live with, that it can't be stopped like that. That if you want it, you can maybe possibly address some of the motivations in the beginning, right? address some of the motivations, that, and I'm not necessarily saying poverty, but address some of the motivations of some of these leaders that are causing trouble in the beginning. Right? They might feel that their ethnic group is discriminated against. So one thing to do is maybe alleviate that particular cause. But there will always be something to motivate on. You can't make everybody happy at all times. And if you can't pay an unlimited amount to engage in counterterrorism, inevitably something slips through. And an analogy I can give you is if you think about speeding, right? There's, this is, if you think about speeding, everybody speeds, right? Everybody in the United States speeds at some point, right? They don't speed in certain areas, right? Because usually there's a sign maybe that says you are going this many miles an hour, so you should slow down, right? So by doing that, by, pay, by paying that little cost and trying to stop people from speeding, you slow people down some of the time, but there's no way a government, which is not the entire population, can stop everybody from speeding all of the time. The same thing is true of terrorism. You can stop people some of the time, and ideally you're stopping the, ma the main ones, the big ones, but inevitably, Something like 9-11 happens, right? Something slips through, regardless of how much energy you devote towards counterterrorism. And that, that, unfortunately, is very difficult for a lot of my students to hear. They don't like that, but it's something you have to live with, right? That inevitably, something like that will happen. Yes? So are the people that are sympathetic to the terrorists, are they poor and uneducated? Not as many. No, there are some, right? Sometimes that's an issue, right? Sometimes that's an issue. But not always. There's a lot of, and there was a study about, it was a survey done in the Palestinian territories to see who supported terrorism. And what they found was the, the, the people that had less education and were less affluent tended to support a peace process with Israel, while the richer and more educated did not. Right? It was, I think it was 
53% of those that were quote unquote less educated and poor supported a peace process while only 45% of those that were more affluent did. So that was a kind of disturbing conclusion that the, the elites are the ones not supporting the peace process. So it's not necessarily the case that it's just poverty motivating people to even support these groups at all, right? That might be part of it, but that's not the whole story for sure. Yes. Give us some historical perspective, if you can, please. Uh, it's our impression. I, I would disagree with that. I would, I would absolutely disagree with that. Terrorism has been pretty consistent as far as it's like. If you were to, data on terrorism that started to be collected in 1968, and if you look at the number of terrorist incidents, there, it tends to be basically flat across from the, from the 60s into the 70s. Once 2001 starts, then it skyrockets up. But that can be explained by a whole host of factors. It's not something new about terrorism. It's been there for a long time. It's been consistent through a long time. It's taken a lots of different forms, such as suicide bombing started in the early 1980s. But before that, there were kidnappings. Before that, there were these. We see Zarqawi's hostage tapes today. And that seems like something new. But in reality, that kind of thing was being done for a long time, even before. So it, it, there's nothing really new about Is terrorism. There an Yes. There's an increase in the number of incidents, for sure. And, and what, what, uh, what some people have noticed is that over time, the number of terrorist incidents remained constant, but the severity of the attacks, meaning the number of people actually killed or hurt by terrorists, was going up. Not at a very great rate, but it was starting to go up. And that re really reflects increases in technology, right? That terrorists have better weapons to use so they can hurt more people, right? But there doesn't seem to be anything inconsistent. Uh, or there, it, after that 2001 point, there's a skyrocketing in the number of attacks. But that can be explained away largely as a result of the fighting in Afghanistan, fighting in Iraq. I actually think that this is an example of why it's a big mistake to overreact to one terrorist attack, right? Because as I mentioned, inevitably something will get through, and that's something to live with, right? But over time, if, you do, if this is being done properly, if you've adopted the proper counterterrorism strategy, which, by the way, most governments do, you can really thwart a lot of these terrorist attacks because terrorists are not supervillains. Most of their individuals like any other individuals, and they make mistakes. They make a lot of mistakes. Sometimes they do things really, really silly, like set off their bombs before they're even ready to go off, right? They do things that are very, that they make a lot of mistakes, right? So if that's what you're dealing with, a lot of times you will stop terrorist attacks. Because our, our system is so perfect. No, it's not. It's, about, you know, no, sure. I mean, and they, I, I think that's right. The system's not perfect. But the system does catch some criminals. It does catch terrorists, right? And, and there are some instances where terrorists just hurt themselves and it doesn't work. It's not easy to pull off something like 9-11. To do that, it takes a lot of coordination. That mission took a long time to plan, a long time to, to, to train people, to get the right people to do it. So it does take a while. And most of the time, I would argue, you, the US government and, and most governments throughout the world are pretty effective in stopping this, right? But pretty effective at stopping this will not guarantee perfect security, and I don't think anything can. Most studies that I've seen pretty much indicate that there's nothing that can guarantee a world free of terrorism completely. But they evidently thought it would be more effective to, you know, plant bombs in London or... Right. Well, and what's, what's interesting there is that what you see amongst terrorists is that they are strategic, and they're not, they're not the, the crazy types that you see. They do tend to behave rationally, right? So if the United States increases its security within its country, Inevitably, that will lead terrorists to conclude it's much more difficult to engage in an attack against the United States, so maybe we can attack U.S. interests outside of the United States. 
or maybe we can attack U.S. allies, right? Because that's an easier activity to do. In fact, if you look at most terrorist attacks against the United States, the United States by far is the leader in the amount of terrorism against it. And it's been that way since the 1960s. But most attacks have been against Americans outside of the continental United States, right? And that's because it's easier to get at them there. If you define terrorism as, as war, right, then we're talking about something completely different. And in my view, we're talking about something different. Right. I define war as something, and I think wars can happen between all governments and, and groups or, or governments and, and other governments. Or, but terrorism, it, what distinguishes terrorism is that if we think about what a war does, you have a conventional army that's trying to destroy another conventional army as fast as possible. Right? But in a terrorist campaign, that's not the strategy at all. In a terrorist campaign, this is really, to use the words of one terrorism expert, it's theater. Right? You're signaling how strong you are. You're signaling how weak the government is. Right? One terrorist attack is not going to win you a war, right? So it's not even a battle, right? What it's designed to do is provoke a response, either in the population you're targeting or from the government, which is going to help you build your, your political capital. and build, It's advertising in a way. It's violent advertising. You're trying to signal how strong you are or how weak the government is, and each terrorist attack is building towards that goal. It's not a I would argue it's not a conventional other man's freedom fight. That, that, that's absolutely true. One man's, and and, that, that's, and that, that's why I would argue is why you, you need to have definitions. And the definitions are never perfect. As I, as I, illustra I tried to illustrate earlier, there's this one definition of, by the State Department which seems to be okay. But if you look at it and you look at what that includes and what it, what it leaves out, it's upsetting, right? And so calling George Bush a terrorist, that can be an emotional response, right? But it doesn't necessarily help us scientifically if we don't know what the term even means. Under the definition that I have and that I use, George Bush can't be considered a terrorist because he is the leader of a state, right? But certainly, you could argue that some of the actions that Bush has authorized might have killed non-combatants, right? And, they, and I don't think anybody could argue with that. Preemptive war. The, the, I'm sorry? The war of uh, preemptive war. Oh, preemptive war, yeah. right. And again, see, again, I would not call that terrorism because it's done by a state, right? But if you expand the definition of terrorism to include any act of violence committed by a state, or committed in the name of politics, then that could be considered terrorism. But as, as most, most uh, people like me in political science and in psychology do, we try to figure out what exactly is it we're talking about, what is the phenomenon we're talking about. And as we define it, that would not be considered terrorism. Yes? Maybe you could argue that, I, but I don't think you necessarily do, because I think if we, we find a definition that most of us agree on, and most of the scientific community, I would argue, does agree on that, then we can understand the phenomenon. I think it's a mistake to just look at terrorism in a vacuum, because most of the groups that do engage in terrorism don't just engage in terrorism. They engage in all sorts of different activities. Right? Most of them don't necessarily just target civilians all the time. They target civilians and military organizations. So if you just look at Al-Qaeda on 9-11, they didn't just target non-combatants at the World Trade Center. They hit the Pentagon as well. So I think it's a mistake to just say we're only going to look at terrorism. I think you should look at terrorism as a tactic, not necessarily as what the group is. You can look at it as a rebel group that is engaging in an act of, of, of uh, resistance against the government. And sometimes that includes terrorism, and sometimes that includes other activities. I think that's actually a better way of, of expanding what we're looking at. Okay, if we, if we do change our definition, though, I, I would argue we're making the problem actually worse. Because if you do make it, then suddenly everything is included in terrorism. And I don't think everything could be considered terrorism. Right? Any act of violence that, that a state takes, 
or any act of political violence that a group takes, I don't know if you can consider everything terrorism. So we might actually be convoluting what exactly we're talking about. But I take your point, that if you do expand the definition, you might get different things. What is terrorism? Okay, well, historically, and historically, if you are a weaker opponent, right, if you're facing a government that's very, very powerful, like the United States, a conventional strategy would be to fall back into an insurgency or fall back into guerrilla warfare. Unfortunately for the opponent, that is a very ineffective strategy. It often is extremely ineffective, and it doesn't seem that way to us now because the United States is dealing with terrorist threats that seem very, very severe, and they are. But if you look at the success rate of insurgencies and of guerrilla wars over time, they tend to be very ineffective. They tend to just prolong the inevitable. So that's certainly something that countries or that states or that non-state actors that the United States fights can do, but it really is in a lot of ways an act of desperation. It really doesn't tend to work as well. I would be willing to say that, 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 a lot of, that some of the activities that the revolutionaries engaged in certainly could be considered acts of terrorism. Yes, absolutely. I would, and I actually, I use that example quite frequently in my class to demonstrate why it's really important in a way to, it, it, to say, we're gonna move beyond just saying, Al-Qaeda is a terrorist, the United States is not. That's not sufficient. If we wanna understand the phenomenon of terrorism, we have to incorporate things that don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily as a gut reaction say that that's terrorism, but sometimes that's necessary to truly understand it. I can understand the frustration with definitions for sure. But, you but, the, them, but I think no, you do have to have them, right. Well, I think what's important is that we don't define our actions based on what is a terrorist and what is not a terrorist, right? We have to look at this as a larger phenomenon of insurgency, I think. This would be my goal. That terrorism is one tactic that, are, that is used by non-state actors, but that doesn't mean that, the not, that not certain non-state actors don't engage in violence and aren't problems for the United States, aren't security problems for the United States. As far as the, the second part of the question, as to whether or not there's actually any sort of solution, the solution really, I, in my view, is to just minimize the level of terrorism that you experience, right? You can take actions that will escalate the amount of terrorism you'll experience. You're never gonna be completely free from it. As long as you can keep it to a minimum, that's really the best solution you, can, you, you have, right? There's some actions that a government can take that will escalate the amount of terrorism it experiences. Yes. It's always going to be knocking at our door. So yes. to just minimize the attacks here, we have interests everywhere. And that's possibly true. But I, I think also when we say we need to minimize the attacks everywhere, what we also have to think about is whose justice are we talking about, right? Because if we're talking about Americans' view of justice, we consider certain things just wrong, right? But to the people that are doing those things, it's not considered wrong at all. So if you try to impose the U.S. set of rules on those individuals, that might provoke terrorism as well. If you're able to dehumanize your enemy to some extent, it allows an individual to engage in this type of activity to, and, and to some extent, very extreme levels, right? And an example you can think about is, uh, do you guys remember in 1994 there was a, a real genocide in Rwanda, right? Most of those people were neighbors for a long, long time, right? There were Hutus and there were Tutsis and the genocide happened against these Tutsis. Most of these people were neighbors for a very long time. But suddenly something went off. This idea of a threat was put into their heads again and again and again. So it dehumanized your enemy. And when you look at your enemy like that, it's easy, in a sense, to, then to destroy them. And that's typically done in most militaries throughout the world, right? That they try to say, if this is an enemy, yes, they're a human being, but they are an enemy and that you have to deal with them, right? I, I have 
opposed to one professor on campus talking about war and politics or politics and war, however you want to say it. And he pretty much, well, you just defined uh, terrorism as a tactic. And then there's war, which is an instrument of policy. Is that a fair hierarchy? Well, well I think that they're, they're both instruments of policies, that if you're a terrorist group, you're, the pol you might want to change a particular policy. Not necessarily the first and, instrument. Right, no, it, it, but it, sometimes it's the only instrument you have, right? So you adopt these tactics and hope that you can eventually grow into something strong enough that is capable of, of really influencing policy. But terrorism is a very inefficient tactic. It doesn't tend to work very often. It tends to be very long if it produces any results, and most of the time the groups don't live very long. So it's most of the time an act of desperation. If you had a conventional army that was effective, then you could adopt that. But if you don't, then you have to resort back to terrorism. I, I would define what's happening in Iraq is there are several insurgencies up against the United States at this point. Many of them engage in acts of terrorism, right? That's a part of their tactic. And, and if you think about the goal of, uh, if you adopt this insurgent strategy, the goal is to try to convince your target population, which is, in their case, Iraqis and the United States, that a war is going worse for the enemy than it is for you, right? So the more they engage in these kind of activities, the more beheadings you see, the worse you think the U.S. position in Iraq is. In reality, the United States is not, it, the U.S. presence in Iraq can't be militarily defeated by most of these insurgent groups, right? It really can't. It, the Green Zone is completely fortified, right? There's no way that any one insurgent group could physically retake the Green Zone. But at some point, that doesn't matter. At some point, what you have to do is sell the idea that the U.S. position continues to deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate. Right? And I would argue they've been very effective at that. Right? By, by continually advertising these attacks and saying that the U.S. position is dying, Right, that the U.S. is basically lost in Iraq, as long as they keep saying that, people might believe it. And again, if you look at the level of casualties even in Iraq, it's about the same as what the United States experienced on D-Day in World War II. It's really not, in terms of a military operation, it's not as drastic. It, each death is horrible for sure, but it does, it's certainly not the case that the U.S. hasn't sustained these type of missions before. But the pitch that you give as an insurgency is you say, this is, these are unacceptable casualties for the United States to bear. Things are much worse than you think they are. And if that message gets through, then you're effective as an insurgent. It appears to me that, that in many cases, these groups are just jockeying for power. A lot of them are, right, amongst so themselves, right. Well, that's certainly true. And some of these groups are, because the, the government is, is a product of, of the Shias, right? There's two splits, major splits in Islam. There's the Shias and the Sunnis, right? For a long Saddam Hussein was a Sunni, and for a long time the Sunnis basically, as a minority within Iraq, basically took the vast majority of the country's wealth. Then once the U.S. toppled Saddam, the majority in Iraq were the Shia, right? So the Shia now, because they've been impoverished for so long, want their share of the pie, right? They want their share of what's there, right? The Sunnis want their privileged position back, right? So that's the jockeying that you're talking about between these two groups as to who's going to rule, right? But within the Sunnis, there are various different insurgencies. Within the Shia, there's also militias that are going around. And these are the things that are, that are doing the fighting. Well, the ones that you don't hear about and fail, they tend to be looked at not as insurgents. They tend to be looked at as criminals, right? Because that's what a government will do. A government, and that's the government's incentive, is to say that these groups are just criminals. In fact, I mean, if you look at Donald Rumsfeld's response to the insurgency at the beginning, that's exactly what he said, right? He said that this is not an insurgency we're dealing with. These are just criminals. That's not a critique of Donald Rumsfeld. That's what most governments do, right? Most governments try to marginalize any sort of political rebellion against them, and by doing that, it inhibits the ability of these groups to gain anything, right? The ones you hear about as the insurgencies, that is, these fierce terrorist organizations, are the ones that survive, 
And the longer they survive, the more institutionalized they become and the more difficult they are to get rid of. So those are the ones you hear about. But in reality, I think the statistic is 70% of these insurgencies never make it that far. They die. They die quickly. Governments tend to destroy them. Yes. Algiers, uh, Revolution one. Vietnam is another case. Yes. Where the Vietnamese yes. won. Yes. It's possible. I, I'm not saying it's impossible, but the odds are against you if you're in a search. It's certainly not impossible. Certainly there have been very high-profile cases where insurgencies have succeeded, but it just doesn't happen very often. It happens, but it's, it's pretty rare. The IRA was successful in that it was able to get a negotiated solution. It was able to get some sort of, of negotiated bargaining. It was able to improve its position as a result of using political violence. So if that's what we consider a successful insurgency, then yes, they were successful. If you consider an insurgency being successful as one that prevails victorious, like Ho Chi Minh, right, though he didn't live to see it, right, he didn't live to see the North Vietnam take back uh, South Vietnam, then no, they didn't, right? Because they didn't destroy Britain completely, but they did get a negotiated solution. They did get something out of it, out of using violence. So I would, I would think that sure, that could be considered success. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go back to what you said about um, the leader instilling fear in the mind of the followers, and I would, I would also say that from our perspective, you know, the American government and especially the media has kind of instilled fear in us, fear in the Sure. So I wonder how, I mean, how important it is, is it for us to understand the psychology and the, what's going on with terrorists, and is that ever going to really get through? I, I don't know if it will ever get there. I mean, that, that's hard, right? Because I, I, certainly for me, right, I, I, I look at all this, this data and all this stuff all the time. But when I see a terrorist attack on TV, my instinct is to feel fear, right? Certainly that's the case. So anybody feels fear. Right? Even if you know better, you feel fear. Right? And politicians have these incentives to keep playing up that. Right? This was the same thing during the Cold War. Right? The evidence, a lot of these politicians have incentives to say that communism is this massive force that keeps moving on and on and on and is, is a potential threat. Right? So that incentive is always going to be there for politicians. The media, medias tend to look at things that have big headlines. So they'll keep advertising these terrorist attacks. So it's very difficult, I think, for any one individual to just say or just completely say, look, I know that this is a rare phenomenon. I know most terrorist attacks don't succeed. I know most terrorist groups don't succeed. So I can just ignore that. Because it's difficult when you look at the images of what happens to actually resist that. And politicians certainly know that and exploit that. Right? So that's, and that's not just a Republican. That's Democrats too. Right? They all will exploit fears of a particular group. I think that there's a lot of truth in that statement. Right? You have nothing to fear because it's... The fear is not corresponding to what the evidence says. The evidence says that this is not really, if you look at the evidence, terrorist attacks kill fewer people a year than traffic accidents, right? But we're not afraid of traffic accidents. We're afraid of terrorist attacks, right? But in reality, they don't do that. It's the fear of them. And that's the whole point of terrorism. The whole point is to try to manipulate people's fear and uncertainty, right? By very publicly advertising these attacks, right? So uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Whether or not any one individual can follow that is very, very difficult, right? Especially if you're bombarded with this every day. But a nation could follow. I don't know. A nation is a collection of individuals, right? Any nation is a collection of their individuals, but right? I don't know about that, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll get. I, th I think almost every government on earth has used fear to mobilize their population and done this successfully, right? Almost every one of them have done this, and that's 
That's not, again, they emphasize that's not just the United States, but it's most governments on, on the, the states were originally organized for the purpose of trying to provide these public goods to people and provide protection to them, security being a big one of them, right? So overwhelmingly, an incentive to organize is to try to say, if we don't organize, there's another group out there that will exploit us. There's another group out there that will cause us harm. So I think every state has tried to use fear to some extent right, as a mobilizing force. They've all done it. It is problematic, and, and, and there are lots of governments that were at one point insurgencies, the United States government included, right? At one point, the United States was an insurgency, right? The whole idea of the Continental Congress was an insurgency. Sometimes that's the, and this is in a sense is a normal development of these groups, right? They start off, sometimes they engage in violence, sometimes they don't, but they keep growing as a political movement, right? And if they do it enough, then they eventually, they might seize power, right? The Democratic Party, when it was, you know, when it was first coming to power, used a lot of things that, they weren't necessarily terrorism, but it certainly was not a peaceful organization, right? It used violence, right? There's a, there, the whole Tammany Hall stuff and the way they were able to bring people to the, the polls and take them to several polls, that was a use of coercion, right? Most political parties do that, right? Some political parties, like, like Gandhi's movement, was just completely peaceful, but that tends to be rare. Most political organizations at some point use violence. And sometimes these political organizations grow into states. And whether or not that's acceptable or not, that's hard because sometimes you just have to live with that, right? That's the way states are. Well, if you can substitute the word militants, which it can be a positive word, mm -hmm. any movement there is militants, yes. address the subject and bring it to the public eye, as opposed to terrorists. And in my own research, that's what I've tried to do, right? I've tried to really emphasize that terrorists and terrorist tactics are really just a small part of the puzzle. It's the tip of the iceberg, really. There's really a whole lot more to it. And there's really a whole lot more to it than just the terrorists that commit the acts themselves or the militants that commit violence themselves. Usually, there's an enormous support structure underneath that really is the heart of, an, of a movement, right? The population that supports them is really the heart of these things. So it is much more complicated than just pointing to the individuals that engage in this violence, right? It's much more multifaceted than that. Okay, um, well, uh, recently there's been a center established by Kevin Murphy called the uh, Center, uh, I don't exactly remember the name, but it was, it's a center devoted to understanding terrorism, and they recently had a conference on the psychology of terrorism, which brought together psychologists from, from Britain, from Israel, and from the United States to kind of organize what we know about the psychology of terrorism. And so it produced a document that was intended for public consumption to tell the people, tell the public, what, what do we as scientists, as psychologists, know about terrorism? And the Institute is designed to do things like that on a pretty consistent basis. It's designed to try to provide grants to people like me trying to do research on terrorism, as well as trying to get people together in a consortium to try to figure out what exactly do we know and how is this applicable to the general public. Right? So I, I would encourage you to look into that, that institute. It's a very good one. No, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary organization. So I think if you just if you were to look it up on the web, you could just type Penn State uh, Center for Terrorism, and you. Full name is International Okay, yeah, it's the Center for the International Study of Terrorism. That's what it is, I think. Well, it, it is a complicated problem, right? Because in any approach that you adopt to counterterrorism, there are trade-offs involved, right? And as I said, at the beginning, most insurgencies fail. Most terrorist groups fail, and that's 70% of the time. And at the beginning of those things, 
chances are the best approach a government can have is if they have something there that looks like a proto-terrorist organization, just destroy it, right? Just destroy it, adopt any sort of coercive pressure you need to and destroy it. But that's not consistent across a whole life cycle of a terrorist movement. If the movement survives past that initial period and starts to institutionalize and look like something that becomes a political party, at some point you can't destroy it anymore, right? So there's a trade-off involved. How much coercive pressure at any given time do you adopt, right? Or how much, how nice do you be to terrorists at any given point? How many concessions should you adopt at any given point? There's a thing in, in bargaining theory called the credible commitment problem, where it's basically if you give a terrorist group some sort of reward, what stops them from 10 years down the line or five years down the line or five months down the line from asking for something else and threatening violence again? So that's a big problem. There are all sorts of these, these trade-offs and these intricacies involved in counterterrorism for sure. I wouldn't say terrorism. I, I would say political the, the need to resort to violence as a tool of politics. That's pretty common. That's common in states. That's common in individuals. That's common across. Right. Sometimes that violence takes the form of a group attacking just civilians. Right. So th there is some. I don't want to say that that type of behavior is is just inherent and is always going to be there. But political violence, I think, is. Well, it's certainly decreased the cost of terrorists for trying to market their stuff, right? So if you're a terrorist group and you're trying to convince individuals that you're a powerful movement, having a website that can show your deeds and show your exploits is a nice way of doing that, right? So much like a firm, right, this is a way of advertising. This is a way of, of showing your product, right? It's a way of showing how strong you are and showing what you're capable of doing and attracting people to your movement, right? So if... There are, for Al -Qaeda, in Al-Qaeda's sense, Al-Qaeda really, as far as its actual military operation, the original Al-Qaeda has dispersed, right? But the message of Al-Qaeda can continue to grow with the internet, right? Because you can communicate the cells in London and cells in Pakistan and cells in Africa, and that is, is an, an enabler, right? That helps terrorist groups out. And it's useful for organizing. It's certainly useful for organizing. And training. Yeah, it can be. It can be, for sure. Yes. I'm, I'm resonating on your... 70% of the insurgencies fail. Inherent in a lot of human beliefs is the behavior in Las Vegas and Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. There are some that are risk accepted, right? I mean, 30% success is better than you'll get in Las Vegas or in Atlantic City. It can be. Right. So it might be a good bet. And in that sense, it's, uh, it's appealing. It can be. But that 70% is a general rule, right? If, I, if you apply different conditions, right? Sometimes that probability will go up, sometimes it'll go down, right? And so it really depends on the conditions. You tend to see insurgencies and terrorist movements happen in areas where the state is very, very weak. The state just doesn't have the institutions to try to control every single aspect. So for example, in India again, there are areas of India which are basically not under government control at all, right? The government just doesn't go there, it can't go there, it doesn't have the capacity to go there. Those are areas where the probability of having a successful insurgency is skyrocketing, right? Because you don't have anybody to counter you. Whereas if you're in the United States and you want to start an insurgency in New York, that's not going to be very likely to succeed, right? So there are all these conditions that make insurgency success more or less likely, right? And it's interesting to model those. And that's, I, I actually think that that's valuable research. Those are, are yeah. those would well. Those would certainly be better than the cities, right? But even those, right? Even those, the United States has a very extensive transportation system, right? So it can get there, right? It'll be able to get there wherever you are in the United States. It can get there. 
in some countries of the world, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there's no way for the government to get there. And the government just doesn't have the capacity to do it. The insurgency of Gandhi and the insurgency of Mandela uh, are seeing successes now. Yes. At least the advertised tactic was not violent. Yeah. Yes. Well, not Mandela's case, but Gandhi, yes. Yeah, uh, th that's a great question. And it, the, the pluses of Gandhi's strategy, it, it's a very risky strategy. Right? It's really hard to convince people, basically, to stand in front of people that are willing to shoot them and do nothing. Right? That's very difficult to convince people. But if you're able to do that and you do get repressed, which certainly happened in Gandhi's case, there were attempts to repress him, there were attempts to destroy his organization, and you survive, that sends a very powerful signal to the people you're advertising to, right? That, you know, I was a nonviolent movement, I did nothing. And yet they tried to repress me, and I'm still standing here. Right? That says that there has that your movement has a lot more teeth, right? And that that tells the population something. And so it can be successful in that sense, but it's real risky, really, really risky, right? As far as the violent strategies, those have the potential to alienate people, right? Because sometimes you do go too far, and the and population will say, well, we don't support that, right? The real question is, if you do that, can you provoke a government response that will get the population to say, we don't like you? Right, but we understand we're under attack, so we have to support you. And I would argue that that's exactly what Al Qaeda was trying to do. Right. I think if there are no more questions, we'll wrap it up. Um, please join me in thanking Dr. Thank Bass for joining us. Thank you.